I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. So the value proposition of the technology is that instead of having all of these folks act as shepherds for a point in time, the technology itself can act as the underlying foundation, and then all of this can be done on a blockchain so that all of these multiple participants are actually digitally participating in the transaction where it sits as an immutable record, and that ledger cannot be changed. The security that you get from a blockchain is the replicability, but it doesn't necessarily imply, you know, the, the, the encryption of the data that's being stored on, on the blockchain. But more importantly, it doesn't imply that the keys that you're using to actually interact with, with the blockchain are, are necessarily secure. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing blockchain technology, uh, which is used in Bitcoin and many other applications. Joining me today is Mark Balin, founder of Bounties Network, a blockchain-based contracting network. Hello, Mark, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And also for this conversation, we have Jennifer O'Rourke, who is from the Office of Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technology at the Illinois Department of Commerce. Welcome, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here today. And Mark and Jennifer are going to be speaking at a blockchain uh, program here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs uh, this week on Thursday, December uh, 14th at 6 o'clock. Uh, please feel free to attend, or also it will be live streamed uh, on thechicagocouncil.org. So if we whet your appetite, there's an opportunity for more. To open this up, blockchain technology has been called revolutionary and genius. It's regarded by many people as a panacea almost for transactions online. But there's also a whole lot of confusion about what this technology is, how it's used, what, what its purposes are. And today we're going to dive into this emergent technology to try to better understand its implications uh, for the world and, and for people's lives. I think one of the main ways people have heard about blockchain technology is through the creation of Bitcoin. Blockchain's potential goes well beyond Bitcoin, and I want to talk about that and those applications as well. But let's start with Bitcoin, and it's a starting point because it's really uh, marked the the emergence of blockchain technology. It's also been in the news lately, uh, primarily because of its soaring value, as people may know. A current Bitcoin is currently worth about $17,400. And for those of you who, who are, th are thinking about it as an investment opportunity, with, even with the warnings of, of uh, the potential for bubble, about a year ago, it was trading for $780. So a $1,000 investment back a year ago uh, would be worth about $21,000 uh, today. Um, so we've got this really big news about, about the escalation in value. And also locally, um, the big development here in Chicago is this week the Chicago Board of Options Exchange launched um, Bitcoin futures on Sunday, last Sunday, December 10th, and they soared. Next Monday, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is planning on launching its own Bitcoin futures. So this technology is showing up 
um, and through Bitcoin in in ways that are are entering into the economy in new ways. And Mark, let me start with you. And so our listeners can understand, could you explain what blockchain is and how it's used for Bitcoin? Again, that's the application that most people have some familiarity with. Yeah, so uh, in 2008, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, a person or group, we don't really know, it's a, it's a, it's a pseudonym, but uh, they introduced this white paper for the Bitcoin network. Uh, and the idea was that you could in a distributed fashion, have people collectively agree on a current state. So Bitcoin, in in its application of this, uh, implied that you could agree on the current state of a ledger, who had how many of each different type of coin. And so as Bitcoin's grown, and over time, people realized that the benefits of blockchain were far beyond just managing the state in a distributed fashion of a ledger, but in fact, you could manage the state of any application uh, in a distributed way and, and get the same benefits of, of blockchain technology, uh, which we can go into if you'd like. So, so over time, Bitcoin, while it's been sort of the original and, and everybody looks back at it to, to compare against, uh, there's been a, a, an explosion of these other applications and other blockchains that are trying to apply the same distributed um, you know, consensus mechanisms, basically, uh, among various trustless parties to agree on the states of various different types of applications. So this is permeating into, you know, uh, supply chain and, um, you know, digital identity and, and a whole crop of other, you know, domains well beyond financial services. So it's a really exciting time for people, obviously, if they're looking to these currencies to buy or, or are interested in them um, from an investment perspective. But I think it's far more interesting uh, when you start to consider the types of applications that can be built on top of the technology uh, and how that can actually have life-changing um, implications. Terrific. And one of the key concepts that you introduced, Mark, was this distributed ledger. What is this? How does it work? And why is it important? So basically, you, you have a set of miners, uh, which is basically just computers, you can think of them, uh, running a program. And, and all it does is this program is always accepting transactions between people, right? So if I want to send you, you know, one Bitcoin, I propagate that transaction through this distributed network. So all the different miners will, will receive my transaction. And all they're doing is sort of competing against each other to be the person who, who mines the next block. They get a, a block reward for that. Uh, and in doing so, secure the network uh, and, and all agree upon the current state of the ledger. So every 10 minutes, Bitcoin has a new block. Uh, after, after that 10 minute period has elapsed, they, all the miners will agree on this new, new block and the new state as a result of the transactions that were included in that block. And, and then we'll begin mining the next block um, immediately after. So it's, cons- it's like this sequential uh, you know, process where blockchains never really stop. They'll keep you know, generating new blocks every 10 minutes. Uh, but they're always, you know, receiving these transactions from individuals like us uh, who, who want to actually transact with the Bitcoin. And so this distributed ledger is basically this idea that the, the, all of these different miners are agreeing on the state of this one, you know, ledger of Bitcoins, who has how many Bitcoins at this time. And so um, based on this consensus mechanism that, that Satoshi introduced, uh, we, could, we could actually have Without, without having a central party orchestrating the system, we could have distributed consensus over really valuable assets like Bitcoin is now. Terrific. And one of the things I understand about the distribution is all these ledgers are coordinated together, so there's not one central place where kind of the, the, the 
where this information is held, but it's simultaneously available in lots and lots of different places, also making it more secure. Um, Jennifer, I, I, you know, you're involved in, um, in entrepreneurship and innovation uh, here in Illinois, and we hear about how blockchain is going to revolutionize businesses, going to recreate or create new opportunities for kinds of, of companies and things. What are you seeing out there in terms of how um, businesses are thinking about using this technology uh, beyond just the Bitcoin example that we've been using so far? Yeah. So first of all, we're seeing a lot of it. I think it's important to kind of start the conversation by talking about what is happening and when that's happening. So as exciting as it is to see all of the headlines about one of the use cases of blockchain technology, payment and settlement, which is the use case of Bitcoin, as exciting as that is, there are so many other ways to use this technology. But as we think about those opportunities, we should be thinking about what we can use right now and how the technology and the larger technological infrastructure will need to evolve so that we can use more of these use cases or use this technology to better provide our services down the road. So to put some examples around that and frame that out a little bit more, um, a really good way of looking at the opportunity that the technology provides um, is through the lens of the Illinois Blockchain Initiative's pilot roadmap for 2017. So Illinois does have a state-level initiative to support this technology called the Illinois Blockchain Initiative. One of the ways that we are finding our role as government in this initiative is to explore the integration of the technology into government itself to better provide services to the constituents we serve. We identified five use cases that span the breadth of a variety of different industries, but where we see the utility of this technology. So, for example, we partnered with the Cook County Recorder of Deeds to explore putting land title records onto the blockchain. We also evaluated the opportunity to put academic credentials and eventually transcripts onto the blockchain. We worked with an organization called Hashed Health to explore putting medical licenses on the blockchain. We're also exploring the idea of putting energy credits or RECs, R-E-C, on the chain. And lastly, we're talking about and beginning our partnership with an organization called Sovereign to think about what digital identity could mean to Illinois citizens. And so we begin that exploration by looking at vital records, beginning with birth events. So eventually the idea of digitalizing a birth certificate. So looking at that span of exploration, you can see a variety of ways in which this technology can allow us to more efficiently digitalize the services that government provides. And through a digitalization, a secure digitalization of these services, we will be able to more efficiently and more effectively provide these services to our constituents, to citizens like you and myself, so that it's easier to interact with government in a secure fashion to do the things that we need to do on a daily basis. That's really interesting. Let me let me ask you to unpack just one of those examples. Um, and, and you know, 
land title, who owns what property where. I mean, the current system, as I understand it, is you guys have a centralized uh, record of all the transactions, the land transactions and all that's accessible. What is, what's the advantage of, of doing that through uh, blockchain technology? Yeah, so that, that's a great example because there are a couple of different value propositions. So first of all, let's think about it from the end user's perspective. You and I as buyer and seller in a land title transaction, I'm buying your condo from you. It's not just a transaction between you and I. It's a transaction between about five to seven of us here. We have ourselves on the ends of the transaction as buyer-seller. We also have each mortgage brokers, which will be receiving a percentage of the profits and therefore are precisely participants in the transaction. We have lawyers that will be reviewing the documents that will lend themselves to these financial transactions. We have mortgage, um, actual the mortgage issuers, so the banks that are providing the debt that will most likely will be used in the transaction. So you can, you have title agents, and then you could have a variety of other participants if there are taxes owed. Um, you're pulling in other organizations that eventually will receive checks that will be cut from this one transaction. And if you think about all the folks in the room, when you're concluding that transaction, if you can go back to that time when you bought your first piece of property and you realize that you're sitting in a room with a handful of folks and you're about to spend two hours signing a stack of documents until you can't (laughs) move your hand anymore. I've had that experience, yeah. (laughs) Right? It's it's an incredibly time-consuming, frustrating process that we most of us have been through and again it's important to remember why are we there well we are literally there to move an asset from one person to another person but the reason why we have all of these folks in the room and the process is so time consuming is that because this asset is so high in value we want to make sure that we trust that the money is going to get moved that the asset is going to get moved that the debt is going to get be able to be moved. And so right there, that example perfectly illustrates the reason why we have a variety of different intermediaries and business models that stand in the middle of transactions to facilitate trust. Trust between parties that the transaction will be executed as it is believed to be executed. So with that being said, in this particular example, you have all of these different folks in the room that essentially are shepherding their segment of a transaction through a particularly long value chain for the mission of ensuring the transaction is accurately executed. So the value proposition of the technology is that instead of having all of these folks act as shepherds for a point in time, the technology itself can act as the underlying foundation and in advance of the final, the final execution of the, the moving of this asset, that final sign-off, you can have your lawyer review these documents digitally. And with review say that I see that the state, as Mark had said before, the state of these documents has not changed. And so I'm signing off that these documents are in good order. And then the mortgage, uh, in, excuse me, the debt originator and mortgage, um, office can do the same thing and in doing so they can they can do this immediately and they can do it much faster and then all of this can be done on a blockchain so that all of these multiple participants are actually digitally participating in the transaction and then the transaction moves to the government office where it sits 
as an immutable record, and that ledger cannot be changed. And that part of that piece of the puzzle is incredibly important as well, because there are a variety of different recorders' offices that are not digitalized. Um, so in that regard, you should have concerns that should there be a catastrophic event and the paper files that are holding record to your land ownership go up in flames, it will be an incredibly long and potentially expensive process to prove that you own the land or the condo that you do own. Now, obviously, that's not our case in Cook County, but there are a variety of counties around the uh, America that actually do not have digital backups. And so being able to say that we have an immutable record that is duplicatively held amongst multiple nodes or multiple organizers to say if one of those records goes down, we still have a variety of others to say this is the record and it doesn't matter that there was this terrible catastrophic event. Jennifer owns the property that she just bought. Fascinating. And and Mark, um, your bounties network, which I described as blockchain-based contracting, what do you do with uh, with blockchain inside of that network? Yeah, so uh, bounties have been around uh, for thousands of years, usually you know employed by states and governments, uh, basically to put up a sum of money and say, you know, I want somebody to do this task. And so what we've done is created a system uh, on the Ethereum blockchain that actually allows people to put bounties uh, on any task. And, and in doing so, they can actually pay people in a variety of different cryptocurrencies instead of having to just pay in, in money. And so it changes a lot of the incentives between the issuers of bounties, you know, the firms that are creating them and outsourcing their work, and the actual people who are doing the freelancing. And so we're trying to change the way that, you know, labor dynamically organizes, hopefully to make it as efficient as possible to actually, um, to actually, you know, outsource work and, and have work as a freelancer so that you don't have to worry about, you know, a lot of intermediaries taking high network fees, uh, which we avoid because we can rely on the blockchain to settle our transactions uh, and hopefully let labor organize more dynamically around, around problems and hopefully let organizations become a little bit smaller because they can outsource more of their work uh, in a, in a non, um, non-evil way, so to speak. <laughs> and, and what are some concrete examples of, of how people are using your network now? Yeah, so bug bounties are a, a growing domain, uh, and that's where we see bounties you know, existing for the last 10 to 15 years, uh, where companies, large technology companies, will put up bounties for people to submit bugs in their code or their systems uh, to incentivize people to actually find them. Um, so people, we have people using those right now. As well, we also have a really growing demand for code bounties. So on you know, open source code you know, repositories that are actually you know, running these systems or some of the building blocks of the systems of the applications that we use you know, day to day, we want to be able to incentivize people to work on those as well. So we're seeing a growing, a growing need there. And, and finally, in the, in the graphic design space is another really big one. Uh, there's a huge demand for, for people who have, you know, needs for, for graphic designers uh, and, and, you know, going to the crowd and listening to the, what, what the crowd has to say about, about a, you know, a certain graphic or let, letting them design it or iterate off of each other. Uh, you can often get the best uh, deliverable that way. And so people are exploring how we can move away from this model of hiring somebody to fulfill a task for some of these domains, but actually just to outsource it a little bit more dynamically so that you can, you know, obviously save the cost, but maybe actually get a better product in the end. 
So both of you have given examples where people have a lot at stake in engaging in the system, right? Whether or not I own my condo or my home, whether or not I'm going to get paid for a piece of work. And we're talking about a technology-based system. You know, there's lots of, lots of stories in the news about, about cyber hacking of various, of various kinds. Um, and I, I'm interested, how secure is this system? I mean, in the news, we've heard about hacks. There was a a 2014 collapse of one Bitcoin exchange that was hacked. Um, you know, how how secure is is this system, and and if more needs to be done, what needs to be done so that people can rely on it and trust this system to to deliver all the benefits you all just talked about? So when people often reference security in the context of blockchain. Uh, a lot of times it's a pretty big misnomer. People will think that the security implies, you know, encryption or privacy of data. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. And Jennifer highlighted this really, really well um, earlier when she said that it's, it's the security you get from replicability. The idea that it's sec- information is secure because you know nothing can happen to it, regardless of earthquakes, fires, floods. You know, someone else on the other side of the world will still have, uh, you know, a copy of the data that you need so that you can trust that it will be there and it will be the same as it was, you know, before the flood or fire, whatever happened. So, so, you know, everything that's stored on the blockchain, you know, in the context of public blockchains, at least is, is public. And so when you think about security, uh, you do still need to have, you know, the security over your keys, you know, your private keys that actually you use to sign these transactions. And that's what you see happening a lot with these exchanges, where instead of individuals taking advantage of the benefits of a blockchain, where you can you know, manage your own money and manage your own private keys, so you don't you know, trust anybody to do that for you, sometimes people will use exchanges, and a lot of the exchanges will actually do that key management for you. And some of the exchanges are obviously a little bit more trustworthy than the other ones, uh, but the less trustworthy exchanges will sometimes get hacked and their, their, their funds will be stolen. And oftentimes there's no way to recoup them because, you know, that's the nature of a blockchain. Once the money's gone, it's gone forever. And so it's important for people to remember that the security that you get from a blockchain is the replicability, but it doesn't necessarily imply, you know, the the encryption of the data that's being stored on on the blockchain. But more importantly, it doesn't imply that the the keys that you're using to actually interact with with the blockchain are, are necessarily secure. And you still need to... You know, this is the growing field of people figuring out the best way to secure their private keys through cold storage and and different types of wallets so that they can make sure that their money is safe. And just to follow up on that, I think something that's important for this audience to understand is that when we think about public blockchains um, and when we think about Bitcoin as a public blockchain in particular, the Bitcoin blockchain has never been hacked. Never. Not once. And that's incredible. And some of the reasons why it's never been hacked are because this code is open source. So everything that is ticking in the background behind that digital curtain that I personally don't understand as a non-technologist, that information, that source code is being reviewed by the entire computer science and developer community regularly to ensure that there aren't any mistakes in it. And with that transparency, even with that transparency, I guess, in the, especially in the face of that transparency, this protocol has never been hacked. To Mark's point, there are applications that sit atop the protocol or the Bitcoin blockchain that have been hacked. So if you imagine that the blockchain is your iPhone and 
exchanges or wallets are apps on your iPhone, the apps have been hacked, but your iPhone hasn't been hacked. And that's what I mean by saying the Bitcoin blockchain has not been hacked. And that's that's an, an incredible testament to what it means to transparently open source um, code to a community where it can be consistently reviewed to ensure that it is as strong as possible. Now I'm going to throw another caveat on top of that to say we are having this conversation now today when deep learning is not a day-to-day part of our technology experience. And by deep learning, I mean supercomputers that can essentially um, work at speeds such that they could break very complex cryptography, the same cryptography that is essentially the security mechanism or the lock on these blockchains or these protocols. What will happen in five years when deep learning becomes more accessible, not necessarily to us as the consumer or the retail community, but just is more consistently out there outside of, outside of the confines of the government or major academic institutions, well, there will be security implications. But at the same time, I have confidence that the cryptography that secures the blockchain will also evolve. So what we see here is essentially a very appropriate and very organic arms race, for lack of a better word, between um, good actors and bad actors that are trying to create open protocols to facilitate these business model changing processes that will allow for, you know, more efficiency, more security, and better delivery of services, i.e. the blockchain. And then there will be bad actors that are seeking to break that. But we expect that to be maturing and evolving, as technology always does, at a similar rate. So that when we have this conversation a few years down the road, we might be talking about the evolution of blockchain technology in such a way that it is unconcerned with the evolution of deep learning and other ways that it could be uh, quote-unquote hacked, but we nonetheless expect to see those evolutions. But I want to be clear that I'm not saying that this technology is hack-proof, but again, with this larger conversation, let's, let's call out time and place to say that right now it is extraordinarily secure, and you would need the computing power of 10x a supercomputer, such as the one housed at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, 10x the computing power of that computer to even attempt to crack the blockchain. And that's not going to happen today. But we'll watch the evolution and the maturization of this technology and others to see how they evolve to find new ways to continue securing the cryptography that drives and secures these blockchains and protocols now. And as we close, what has been really a fascinating discussion, I just would wonder if each of you could share with our listeners who are going to be watching this process unfold, going to be capturing, you know, the headlines are going to be about Bitcoin values and all. As, as people are trying to understand how blockchain is, is entering into their, into their lives and processes that affect their lives, what would you encourage them to pay attention to? So I would encourage them to, to pay attention to, sort of like we alluded to earlier, um, making sure that the layer that they're actually using to interact with the blockchain is secure uh, and, and making sure that it is, in fact, just as trustworthy as the underlying uh, blockchain is. 
because that would basically negate any of the benefits that you could possibly get uh, from relying on the distributed ledger. Uh, but more importantly, I would I would att- attempt to move their focus away from you know looking at the price, which is very often what people will do, the prices of these various currencies on these blockchains, but focus more on the number of applications and the the vast you know variety of them and how they're touching people's lives uh, across literally across the world. Uh, and and I think that's a far more compelling and far more interesting uh, you know topic to think about and to focus on rather than just the you know fluctuating asset prices. Jennifer? Yeah. No, I, I, I second that 100%. And I would say for folks in this audience that are seeking reliable resources to guide them um, down the path of Mark's comments, check out Coin Center. It's an incredible uh, blockchain advocacy organization that um, puts out a lot of 101 level and also um, more detailed information about how you as a end user can interact with the technology. Um, but to answer your question, what I'm really excited about is digital identity. And um, I'm sure we will spend more time talking about this on the panel, but I am incredibly excited about the promise of digitalizing my identity in a secure fashion that allows me to interact with all of the various trusted institutions that I do today, but in in an incredibly more efficient manner. Fascinating. And Jennifer, could you say one more time the source of uh, that information that you mentioned? Yes. So Coin Center is a great resource. Yes. Uh, terrific. Well, I thank you both, Mark and Jennifer, for helping us get our handle around you know, this emerging and, and really important technology, which clearly has, has uh, tremendous applications in many places. So thanks, both of you, for taking the time to, to share with us. Thanks thank for, having for having us. Okay, great. Mark and Jennifer will be here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs this Thursday, December 14th at 6 p.m. You're welcome to come to the event. You can also watch the live stream, which you can find at thechicagocouncil.org on the web. And their event will be archived afterwards if you're not able to watch it live. I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the institutional views of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and send the episode to someone who you know would enjoy it as well. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was recorded by Bernie Fazio and edited and produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.